irrespective of outbreak status or any state of emergency, you should always have access to your loved one. <laughs> you should never lose that right. Residents have rights. So you cannot suddenly strip them of their rights and confine them as has happened over the past five months. Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm a certified caregiving consultant and a certified caregiving educator. I also lead a caregiver support group in my local community. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here, we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Speaking of best medicines, right? (laughs) (laughs) You got that right. You know, we we had a personal experience not too long ago when a family member was severely injured in an accident. And because of COVID-19, his wife, our daughter, was not allowed into the hospital uh, while they were not knowing whether he was alive. We stood there in the parking lot and watched a life flight helicopter coming in. It wasn't for him, but we didn't know that at the time. So in addition to, you know, being an advocate for caregivers, it just seems so important that there should be an essential caregiver who's allowed into facilities, hospitals, and care homes to be an advocate for that person. You know, what we found out was the not knowing was probably more intense and more scary than actually knowing. That that whole just not being able to communicate with anybody anywhere. It was horrible, an absolutely horrible experience. And we we spoke with uh, Mary Daniel, uh, Caregivers for Compromise, about the importance of continuing visits for loved ones in a care home in the United States. Um, But that's a much bigger issue than just here in this country. And that brings us to today's guest. She is an associate uh, teaching professor at Ontario Tech University who specializes in family caregiving. During this pandemic, she has become a leading advocate against restrictive visitation bans across long-term care and many other group home settings. Most recently, she has filed an essential caregiver strategy motion that sought to address the dangers of ongoing visitation bans and grant meaningful access for essential family caregivers across all congregate care settings. Please welcome to Roger That, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for agreeing to participate. Happy to be here. So we mentioned at the top of the show our frustration with our son-in-law. Yes. We know that people who are in care facilities, and and we specifically deal with dementias of of various kinds, that it's so upsetting to a care uh, family member when somebody in care doesn't recognize them anymore. And when we take that opportunity away for days or weeks at a time, months, um, that's devastating. Yeah, this, you know, I've been very clear about this, in my opinion, not only just how, especially in Canada, particularly in a handful of provinces, uh, mine being the most populous province, Ontario being one of the hardest hit, in relation to how our government handled the response, or more appropriately bungled the response, and, you know, facilitated the statistic that, I don't know if you read this, but um, we have, uh, Canada has the highest proportion of deaths in long-term care facilities of all OECD countries. So the Organization for um, Economic Cooperation and Development. So we far 
surpass uh, Spain, Norway, Israel, you guys, the US is at 31%. Our deaths, 81% of Canada's known COVID-19 deaths were in long-term care and retirement housing. And oh my God, I just got goosebumps. It, That's horrible. It's horrifying. So not only did we have this situation where um, we, we saw as it was unfolding a very problematic response that was directly facilitating the disastrous situation we saw in terms of this statistic. And other provinces acted much quicker and took very decisive early and, and crucial action to you know, result in a situation where they had um, you know, a, a tenth of the deaths, and I, when I speak to that statistic, it's BC, which is, you know, um, the province that leads in terms of the pandemic response. I mean, even the New York Times published a profile piece on that um, premier, Bonnie, uh, sorry, the chief medical officer there, Bonnie Henry, who has just been fantastic, and she, she took the steps needed to do early on which involved you know, nationalizing these homes, taking them all under the control of the government, making sure staffing was in place, proper PPE. And uh, those steps were crucial and also forbidding uh, inter-facility movement between staff because a lot of these workers are precariously employed, part-time jobs have to work at several different facilities. And that was key in the transmission rates um, or the, the quote unquote wildfire burning across these facilities. And we did not take those steps in other provinces and particularly Quebec and Ontario where we really dropped the ball. We didn't provide proper PPE for a long time. We were telling staff in these facilities they didn't need to wear PPE unless they were an outbreak. So ignoring the evidence that we had on asymptomatic spread. So, you know, I could come in a whole conversation as to the, the specifics of the response, but the, for, you know, our purposes of this podcast, the the main issue and what I really focused my advocacy on was the essential uh, visitation bans, essentially. So on March 13th, um, and you know, around that time, most provinces and across Canada really had these restrictive bans across these facilities. Um, and uh, nothing has really changed. So this has been over five months now. So for the first three months, uh, family were restricted to essentially Skype visits. And the facilities were so chronically understaffed that they would maybe maybe get a five-minute call once a week. Okay, so this is going from families who would be visiting their loved ones every day, talking to them numerous times a day, especially the essential family caregivers, to not knowing at all what was happening in these facilities, knowing watching the death toll increase. So the amount of trauma that this was causing families who were essentially forced to just stand by helpless and hear the numbers escalate and hear experts and advocates like myself warning that this would keep getting worse unless our province took more decisive action like other provinces were doing, which they didn't, right? So families knew how horrible this was and they had every right to be fearful that essentially their family was potentially dying or already deceased in these facilities. We had reports of family finding out from funeral homes. So it, it sounds to me as if there's actually two issues going on. One is people were coming into the facility that were spreading the disease that were not family members. Yes, they were staff. And very often that's because care workers move from facility to facility. And the other is, you know, keeping the family members out. And is there, in, in your outreach, is there information and training available to family members on how to become an essential caregiver? What steps can they take to let the facilities know that it's safe to let me in? 
Yes, and we've actually been part of these processes. So, you know, over the past few months, we've worked with leading nursing organizations, leading elder care organizations, and we have come up with um, very detailed documentation on exactly what is required to safely reintegrate family into these facilities. So this this is no surprise. We, we've told people for months now what needs to be done. We had evidence come out of uh, the Netherlands that showed us how this could be done safely. They had a, a national experiment there essentially where they opened up some of the homes for a week um, and then let visitors in, then shut it down for three weeks to see if it would indeed cause more outbreaks or lead to you know, further spread. That was the fear. And they found that no new outbreaks resulted. And as you can imagine, there was very positive impacts for both the family and the residents who are obviously relieved to have their loved ones back in there and assist with feeding and assist with that very crucial care and support that they provide. So we had information, we knew what to do, we created documents and we have shared those very widely with the government and with um, <laughs> numerous organizations. Can you share with, uh, with our listeners what those guidelines are for people coming in that clearly you were using effectively if there were no new cases? is based on letting an essential caregiver in. Well, you know, in the Netherlands, they really didn't do that much. Essentially, they, you just had to wear PPE. You did a temperature test. So they had little thermometers before you walked in. And of course, they screened you for some questions. Are you not feeling well? Do you have a cough? That kind of thing. And that was really it. And then they showed you how to don off and don off your PPE. Um, it was that simple. And it doesn't take that long to provide this training. We have numerous videos um, that hospitals have created that we've um, also been in touch with that you could, you know, 10 to 15 minute videos that show you how to put on a mask and to take it off. It's, this isn't rocket science, right? People can very quickly and easily and successfully learn how to use a mask successfully and properly wash their hands and maintain distancing. And by the way, in the Netherlands, they didn't even, um, they allowed some of the, the family members to, to even take off the mask and eat with their relatives and have coffee and tea provided there was some distancing so they even kind of skirted the rules that we haven't even considered doing here and they still did not have any infections so you know we it can be done it's not that difficult the debates and the the specifics around how many people to let in for how long uh, do we let them in during a pan during outbreaks which Absolutely, we have suggested this should be uninterrupted access. Irrespective of outbreak status or any state of emergency, you should always have access to your loved one. <laughs> you should never lose that right. Residents have rights. Individuals have rights. You cannot suddenly, you know, strip them of their rights and confine them as, you know, has happened over the past five months in what is tantamount to pandemic prisons. What has happened is horrifying. It's happening in hospitals. I mean, yep. it, is, it, is it the same restrictions in hospitals that family members, no one is allowed in? Uh, they're a little in, more flexible in, in, in hospitals here. I think one of the things um, where our son-in-law was, was that was a, what they call a COVID hospital. Mm -hmm. That that's where COVID patients went to. And so they were a bit more restrictive there than they were at a hospital about 10 miles away where you could be in, a, uh, especially in the emergency room. Hmm. So um, I think that was the delineator there with our son-in-law and with uh, um, uh, some of the other hospitals. Um, I would like to touch base on something uh, kind of, uh, turn a little bit. In 2012, um, Dr. Stamatopoulos, you did some research, and that research showed that 
one and a quarter million Canadian youth between the ages of 15 and 24 provided unpaid caregiving? Yeah. Is there any update on that number? Uh we actually the more the most recent uh data did come out but it hasn't been publicly uh accessible yet so i've been waiting very uh impatiently to get the public access files that we uh we can get as researchers it just hasn't been everything's been delayed with COVID. it was supposed to have been released a few months ago and it hasn't been but i'm waiting for that very patiently um i'm assuming it will have gone up and we expect it to go up because you know here's the thing Families, especially adults, are busier and their lives are more harried than ever before. And this is because we do not have this model of a stay-at-home mom um, and, you know, you know, a primary male breadwinner. Um, even if people wanted that kind of lifestyle, you can't afford it right now because of changes in the labor market and the restructuring from globalization. So we've had to have, you know, dual working households, which means that when there are issues remaining with care, unmet care needs, uh, be it for grandparents, be it for uh, sick siblings, or if a parent gets sick, quite often the young person has to step up because they're seen as more flexible to provide certain facets of care because, you know, they're not working, their paychecks don't depend on it. But keep in mind, their education and their future earnings capacity very clearly depends on it. So people haven't really been paying enough attention to how much of an impact that's going to have on our future generation of adults and their future fiscal, you know, uh, sustainability and, and safety going into adulthood and going into uh, their elder years. And um, it is, as it stands, a very under-researched area in terms of the broader caregiving umbrella. And it's it's also underreported. I mean, we we've. Uh actually talk to people about, you know, teen caregivers and the huge numbers of teen caregivers there are, and even younger than teens. Um, we have a granddaughter who was very much involved in assisting care with her grandmother during the time that she had it. But people don't identify them no. as caregivers. No. And, and not only do the young people not identify themselves as caregivers, because that's something, that's a strange word, right? Even research even shows right. that adults have trouble calling themselves caregivers. And if you survey them, they'll right. be like, that's a strange word. I'm a family member. I'm not a, I'm not a caregiver. So if even adults have that reticence to self-identifying, forget youth, right? And they don't want to tell their friends about it because they'll be stigmatized and quite frankly, kids can be cruel. So if you start talking about the health issues of your family, you know, kids have been bullied, we've heard this. So they keep it very quiet. Furthermore, there's the very real concern of a official social service intervention. And some kids have indeed been taken out of these families. So their families mm -hmm. rightly tell them, don't talk about it. We don't want to be seen like we can't take care of our, our, own, our own loved ones, right? And we're worried that the right. kids will be taken out. So it's very self-silencing to be a young person this, in this situation. And I don't know if you know this because it's I don't really talk about it all that much but that's why I got into this research because I was one of these younger people who took on this caregiving role for my grandparents and it's also why I'm such a staunch advocate right now with long-term care because for 14 years now I I was the primary caregiver for my grandparents who I'm extraordinarily close to right before the pandemic um, my grandmother died in a long-term care facility and the conditions around that were not good and i'm currently also seeking legal action against that facility so that's why when that you know the gates essentially got closed i knew from first experience when you 
Were you a teenager? I was a little, I was at the older end of that bracket. So I was 25 when it started, but I still felt completely alienated from all my friends who were, you know, finally starting to get jobs, just finishing university or college and living their best life. And I was this weird person who was changing diapers and doing shopping mm -hmm. and dealing with financial care and doing powers of attorneys and lawyers. And, and I just, I couldn't, I even at that age didn't feel like I could identify with my friends and, and it, you know, the, the consequences it had on my social life. Absolutely. Now you're touching on, you're touching on a demographic that I so struggle to reach, to teach them what they need to know about what's coming. Because by the time you're 25, if you think in the next 10 to 15 years, say 35, 40, it's, it's your, not necessarily your parents. It could be your husband or your wife. Yep. It could be your friends. It could be your cousins. Brother or and sister. at this age group, very often they think, I've got lots of time to think about this. But it's you, as you can testify, it, it happens. Mm -hmm. And um, when you're dealing with all of those things that you just mentioned, the powers of attorney and dealing with doctors and understanding what's going on, when it hits you all of a sudden and you haven't had a chance to prepare, you're way behind the curve. Um, so that's an important issue too. Yeah. And I had honestly, keep in mind, I was somebody that had pretty advanced educational degrees. I was very uh, resilient. I could seek out assistance. I knew where to look for things. And even I didn't know that this was something that was happening only until I started my PhD halfway through. I started my PhD in an entirely different topic. I was looking at globalization, political economy, which is still uh, very important to me. Um, but halfway through, things got really difficult as my grandparents were aging and in and out of hospitals and surgeries. And, and I, I was just overwhelmed. Um, and then I, I was, I remember I was in a class one day and another student had mentioned that they were looking at uh, young adult caregivers. And I was like, there's research on this. This is something that happens. And then I started looking and then I saw that, you know, the UK has this whole expansive literature um, and people are studying this and it's a thing. So then I said, you know what, I'm going to pivot. I'm going to change my entire topic and focus on this because nobody, like there was a handful of people that were talking about this in Canada that, you know, and we all know each other now because there's literally, you can count them on one hand. Um, but it was, nobody really knew much about it. So that's, I, I, you know, kind of threw a wrench in the plan with my uh, doctoral committee and said, hey guys, do you mind if I kind of <laughs> throw you a curveball and kind of look at this instead? And then they knew about my life. Um, and they said, you know, they trusted me, thankfully, because you, you're not supposed to do that, right? Like you sign on <laughs> to a committee that is an expert in a certain area and you can't just kind of change the topic halfway through. But they, they trusted me and they let me and, um, and that's what I, I halfway through made my life a lot more difficult, learned an entire new set of literature, started from scratch, and then went down this realm of, of family caregiving and particularly focusing on uh, youth and young adults. And now, it's a huge issue that's growing daily. It Might will continue ahead. to grow. Yeah. Now, I also saw in researching for the program that you're involved um, with a team of Canadian researchers on social sciences and humanities. Um, and exploring the transition of youth mm -hmm. to adulthood in the context of caregiving. Is that what you're talking about here with your five people? Or uh, is no, that those different? are just the, the, uh, the experts that were in the area when I first started. But 
I am, some of them are on these studies. So uh, yeah, I'm on two current studies right now. Uh, we've pivoted to looking at, uh, well, COVID and how to handle emergencies for young, for young people. And we've noticed very oddly that the young carers have kind of disappeared during COVID-19. And, and that kind of frightened me at first because I was like, well, are they, what, where are they? Why are they not? And I put out some calls on Twitter, like, are, are you guys okay? I haven't heard from you. Is everything okay? And um, what we've seen so far in our research um, is that it's actually been easier for them to be at home and not have to deal with school and, yeah. and those obligations. So it's obviously, it, it's oddly made their life a little less stressful to be more available and to be there with their loved ones in the same house. It's obviously an entirely different situation for loved ones that they couldn't access, like those people essentially trapped in long-term care and congregate care and you know, other retirement housing situations. But those that were able to isolate together are, have right. been faring better than we thought they would be during the pandemic. Well, that's one of the things that um, kind of an, an advantage of people not going to school and not going to work is there are more family members at home that can assist Absolutely. the family caregiver and not necessarily yeah. in the changing the undergarments and bathing, but doing a lot of the other household things that need to be mm -hmm. done. And my advice always is put them to work and give everybody a job yeah. to do. And we think that's why we and haven't heard as much from them. An emergency in the moment. Yeah. Everybody knows what they're supposed to do and what, you know, what the responsibilities are. And I can imagine it takes a lot of pressure off Yeah, because even with distance learning, the students aren't in class all mm -hmm. day. So some of that pressure is off too. And there's flexibility, right? So like the way I ran my classes during the, um, the lockdowns uh, was to have the asynchronous option versus asynchronous. So the synchronous, you're forcing right. them to log in at a certain time. But I always come from the perspective as being a former caregiver and, and knowing that flexibility and timing is very difficult for us. So I said, no way in hell. I'm going to go straight to asynchronous and the deadlines will be extended. And you can listen to that video, that lecture anytime you want that day, right? So in between caregiving tasks, whatever works for you and finish the work when you can, right? Instead of putting that stress on you and, and trying to mimic or mirror that in-person performance via the asynchronous version or synchronous. And, and it's interesting. Once, once upon a time when I was taking the online classes, I always looked for for the asynchronous classes, <laughs> because I'm, I'm an early riser. Yeah. So at six to seven or six to eight o'clock in the morning is my prime time. Yeah. And I could go on and I can get more accomplished in a half an hour than a synchronous class for an hour and a half. Yeah. And you might find that teenagers are doing it at one or Odd two hours. In the morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love the asynchronous classes. Yeah, and that's what I've chosen to do because understanding that some of them will have these requirements and, and not just that, even if they're not caregivers, there are potentially caregivers in the house. There are, you don't, you can't control that situation. You don't have the flexibility to go, you know, to a coffee shop and listen to the lecture or go somewhere quiet. Like you have to account for the fact that you can't control that entire situation and give them that flexibility. Yeah. I am, I'm a big asynchronous fan, for sure. <laughs> yeah, me too. Here in the United States, when it comes back to the essential caregiving, um, there, there is a Facebook page where people from every state in the United States mm -hmm. are coming together, um, you know, sharing information about reaching out to governors and government. Do you have something oh, like that? Oh, yeah. 
we have several Facebook groups. We have, and, and a lot of families have told me they have specifically joined Twitter just to be able to get information from me because the government wasn't providing a lot of information. So one of the you know, key things I was trying to do was provide updates. I was very you know, um, present during all the press conferences and usually um, based on my tweeting and my commentary, then you know, the media started to come and ask for extra, expert opinions. So it got to the point where essentially after every press conference by our premier who runs our province and their government, um, I would be contacted by, you know, the, you know, the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, or, or, or you know, very important um, broadcasting uh, news media sources to then provide my, you know, post-evaluation of what we just heard. And I would, you know, I was, I was the critic. I was pretty much, I think, the I think I'm the loudest critic in the area. <laughs> I know I'm certainly in my province. Um, they definitely know when you want the critical evaluation of what's happening that uh, you, you come to me. I've been very honest and maybe I've ruffled some feathers, which I have no problem doing because I will always be on the side of the, the caregivers and the care receivers. Yes, and I'm um, a true advocate. Absolutely. Because I've lived it. I get, I get it. Right. And, and I think these families have every right to be worried. Keep in mind that in, in our long term care system, it has been consistently understaffed and problematic for decades. There are, you know, national public inquiries, commission after report after uh, the military report. Did you know that we sent the military into a handful of the um, most hard hit homes, militaries and hospitals to help oversee them because they were just it was a war zone effectively in these homes. Mm -hmm. um, and the military provided a report which was leaked to the media as they do when they, you know, like a, a part way through, here's what's happening. And it was horrifying. It was literally the news across Canada. The, the, our prime minister said he was horrified. You know, the premier had tears in his eyes. It was the things that were in that military report, like people being force fed and choked to death, like to death malnutrition leading to death, people dying from not dehydration, um, cockroach infestations, uh, people being chemically sedated um, because they were screaming out for help, crying, needing help, and they didn't have time or resources to go and help all the people. So they effectively sedated them with very, and this is something that has even happened before the pandemic, which is very problematic. We have to have family members in there. And this is it. We had said, and we've been very clear from the beginning, if you had the family in there, provided they had PPE and went through the proper uh, training, which does not take long, um, they would have been those crucial set of eyes that would have been raising the red flags for things that they saw that were problematic, right? And they're the ones that notoriously, by the way, are the key um, defendants of resident safety and abuse. They're the ones calling the ministry, triggering inspections, getting lawsuits and lawyers involved when they see wrongdoings. It's not staff whistleblowing because they're afraid of their jobs. Granted, we did have a lot of staff whistleblowers during the pandemic because it got so bad. Even they were whistleblowing to the patient ombudsman. And by the way, those reports were provided to our government a full month before the very scandalous military report came out, which they couldn't deny because it got leaked to the press. So they knew this was happening and nothing was being done. And family knew because stories were coming out through the media and reporters. And we were saying for months, we have to get family in there. They need family to not only fill the, uh, the crisis of, of staffing shortages because family were always there to fill in those gaps. They provided crucial feeding support, mobility support. They were the ones essentially taking the loved ones for a walk. Feeding them was one of the most important things they do. So the starvation deaths have been the most horrifying and preventable throughout this whole thing because families 
could have prevented and would have prevented those deaths. If you had uh, a piece of advice for the listeners of this show who are concerned about their family member or their loved one in a care home about how to go about getting safe access, what would you say to them? Well, I'd say, you know, get an advocate uh, who, who it, hopefully there are advocates who are already talking about this and ideally have relationships with us. Media, I, I'm telling you, the role that media has played has been so helpful because part of the thing that I've been doing, probably the most important thing I've been doing has been sending family because family have been coming to me every day for months and that's how it started family would share their stories with me and I would start posting some of them anonymously and then people started paying attention and then the press would start paying attention and then you know it kind of snowballed um, and I would send families to media and because of several media stories what I've learned is that these facilities don't like the spotlight being put on them so, but family, here's the problem. Family are so scared to speak up and say anything because they're very fearful of, um, you know, retribution ret to the family and, 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 and they have every right to be because we have stories of homes uh, doing things like putting out trespass orders and barring family who have raised red flags. So they have every right to be scared. But in this context right now, what I've seen is that coming forward and really putting that spotlight on these bad actors, these bad homes has led to changes. So we've had some, um, a particular gentleman that I've been working with for months. Um, we finally got him in every day to help feed his mother because it got so bad, like most residents, but we did several stories with him with a very, you know, a key reporter here in Toronto and enough people, I guess, were paying attention, complaining and, and the home decided to act and let him in as an essential caregiver. Now, you had mentioned that you've been very critical of the government. Oh, yes. And has any of them reached out to you to say, hey, will you be on our task force? <laughs> or have they done a task force? No. And that's the thing. And I've also criticized not only, um, you know, their lack of reaching out to the experts, but keep in mind, we have a pandemic response table, right? So a team of experts who are the ones responsible for the long-term care response over the last five and a half months. And you know who's on that committee? And we, we only found out recently, um, but generally there's been a very serious problem of lack of transparency on who's making these key decisions. But we found out this incident management system and it is 80% men, no offense, but the majority of uh, caregivers are women, the majority of long-term care residents are women, and the majority of the frontline staff are women. So that's a very big problem that 80% are men, and they were, the majority of them were hospital CEOs. And there was also a for-profit long-term care provider on there. So there's a little bit of a conflict of interest there when the for-profit homes in particular in our province were the worst offenders and they were the majority of the homes that the military had to be deployed to because of the horrifying health outcomes and the state of things in those situations and multiple class action lawsuits have been levied against the majority for profit long-term care facilities which by the way during the entire pandemic saw their shareholder wealth continue to increase while they weren't uh providing sufficient PPE to staff. And we have reports, we have, this is widely documented in the news, yet they were still taking in millions of profits. So that's a whole other case we have against getting for profit out of care. It should not be there at all. Well, this is clearly a huge ongoing and very important issue where you are. And we are so grateful that you took the time to spend with us today and cover the topics that, that we've touched on. Um, and, and it's not only 
during this pandemic, but it's even after the pandemic, these are things that need to be addressed. So the whole system has to be overhauled. There's no question about it. It just yeah. exposed the, the crisis in the system that was there before the pandemic. The pandemic just exacerbated it and shone a well-needed light on everything that was already wrong and that experts had already written about and knew about for decades. <laughs> Well, you know, one thing that's always evident, um, you know, when I was taking care of, of Mike's dad oh, for that period of seven years, the patients in the hospital and the patients in the care homes where families are present get better care. No question. And what we've it. done is we've banned those family members from being there. 100%. Um, so that, so that, that's an issue. Um, oh yeah. There's reductions in medication errors, reductions in falls and injuries, um, uh, reduced mortality when families present and when there's active involvement, reduction in staff burden, right? Because a lot of these facilities are understaffed. So family has notoriously filled in those gaps. You remove that. And I've said that family are the crux that holds that system together. The second you remove that crux, the system collapses. And that's exactly what's happened during this pandemic. I think that is a wonderful idea to kind of wrap up. Mike, you have something to say? Yeah, I was going to say that there's also those those patients or or um, uh, in-home community members that aren't a squeaky wheel. And because they're not squeaking, they don't get any oil. And, yeah. and they're neglected, not because they want to be, uh, the staff wants to neglect them, but everybody else is squeaking and they're not. My dad would not tell you. Yeah anything. He would say, go take care of the sick people. I can take care of myself. Yeah. Don't worry about me. Whereas with Bobby being there, yeah. his needs were met, even though he refused to acknowledge the needs. That's right. And she put so much time onto his life by being there yeah. as opposed to not being there. No question about it. He would have gotten any attention. Yep. Same thing with my grandparents. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show. <laughs> it's been an absolute joy. It's been <laughs> um, my pleasure. It's been, it's been invigorating. I mean, you have so much passion. I do. I've that, been told that before. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um refreshing because so many people just go through and are just like, well, I can't do anything about it. So no. I'm just I don't come from that point of view. I've always been someone where you see injustice, you do something, I get angry, and that fuels my actions. So luckily, I, you know, I might ruffle some feathers, but I, at least it helps people. And that's all I care about. I, I don't need to be loved. I need to be respected and helpful. That's what I care about. <laughs> well, ruffle away, my dear. Thank and again, you. thank you so much for being thank on you the so show. Much, yes. you too. <laughs> Take care you and too. continue success. Thank you. <laughs> well, I think my biggest takeaway here is family is the crutch that holds the system together. I'm going yeah. to quote that and quote that and quote that. <laughs> yes, indeed. But one of the things I found horrifying was the 81% that she said of, of, the, of the death rate. It was like, holy crapola. Yeah. That's, that's unreal. Take the most vulnerable people and you put them in a situation where, you know, disease runs rampant. And I, I don't know about Canada, but here, you know, the media is so vilified anymore. But the key is getting the media involved and, and the media will take that bone and they will chew on that bone and f forget about all the vilification. Look at what they can do in a positive note and, and bring that, bring things like that to the media that uh, uh, probably more effective than calling your local congressman. Oh, absolutely. You know, we see it in, in issues on our, 
local media, seven on your side, people call and they have an issue. Folks, we just gave you a tip. <laughs> if you can't get into a care facility and you know, you're concerned, call seven on your side or whatever uh, channel that might be. Um, you can find more information about Vivian on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America, a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.